Hello and welcome to Get Flushed, the sanitation podcast. My name's Pete. In last week's show, I had the pleasure of talking with Jack Sim, the founder of the World Toilet Organization and a leading advocate for global sanitation. Jack was one of the most interesting people I've ever talked with. He's got a great backstory and his work to improve other people's lives is a real inspiration. Now he's clearly a very busy man because the only time he had to take my call was at 1am on Saturday morning here in New Zealand. And that meant I didn't have chance to analyse or interpret his comments before I published the show last Sunday. Fortunately, things have been a bit more relaxed for me this week, so I thought I'd take some time today to go back over that conversation and unpack some of the ideas that Jack shared. The first thing he said was that World Toilet Day is now 20 years old, and that's a huge milestone. When he told me that, I wondered how many portable restroom operators are actually aware of World Toilet Day or get involved. Well, a quick search on the internet suggests that quite a few do make an effort. Some of the larger companies, particularly in the US, have shared the World Toilet Day logo and they've mentioned it on their social media. Some are holding fundraisers and other events to support the cause. But I'm sorry to say that many of the restroom operators I've worked with have never done anything to mark or celebrate World Toilet Day. Maybe that's because restroom operators and the World Toilet Organization have completely different agendas. Portable sanitation operators largely provide toilets on a commercial basis for convenience in the absence of a permanent plumb network. The World Toilet Organization is more concerned with influencing social change in communities that lack toilet facilities or don't have the basic infrastructure needed for proper sanitation. But as Jack says, none of us have a choice. We all have to go to the toilet. So while they might be at different ends of the spectrum, they are both on the same spectrum. I was really reassured to hear that the Portable Sanitation Association International, the PSAI, aligned itself with the World Toilet Organization in 2017 and it celebrates World Toilet Day every year. Now I haven't mentioned the PSAI in the series before, but they're the world's largest and most influential trade association in the industry. Their published vision is a world in which clean and safe sanitation is accessible to all, so their alignment with the World Toilet Organization makes a lot of sense. I'm hoping to talk with Carlin Kloss, the president of the PSII, in a future episode, so no doubt we'll hear more about them and their relationship with the World Toilet Organization then. The second aspect that Jack talked about was the difference between washers and wipers. Now, if you're not aware, there are different toilet habits around the world. Some cultures prefer to wipe with paper, while others prefer to wash. Now I'm prepared to admit I'm a wiper. I was born and raised in the UK, I moved to New Zealand when I was 38, and wiping with paper is all I've ever known. When I was growing up, one or two friends had B-days in their bathrooms, and I've seen them in hotels and airports as I've travelled the world, but I've never used one. Rose George highlighted the separation between wipers and washers in her book The Big Necessity. She wrote, Using paper to clean the anus makes as much sense hygienically as rubbing your body with dry tissue and imagining it removes dirt. She also added, paper cultures are in fact using the least efficient medium to clean the dirtiest part of their body. I haven't really thought about that before, and Jack didn't make any judgments, but his comments made me wonder whether or not there is a better way than paper. Jack also mentioned that Japan is leading the way in terms of toilet culture, toilet technology and innovation. High-end toilets produced in Japan have been capable of washing and drying the user for many years. Some of them even have heated seats. Japan has also pioneered the use of diagnostic technology to assess the toilet user's health. 
Toilets are now able to test urine for diabetes and screen faeces for signs of other illnesses and disease. Those things seem a far cry from remote communities where there is simply no sanitation. I know that the cost is also very high compared with simple toilets, but it seems that anything and everything is possible in the world of sanitation. Jack also spoke about the need for privacy and expressed concerns about the open plan design of some American restrooms, especially where the doors don't reach the ground. Now I've been to the US several times and I've never seen any open plan toilets. Well I have, but they were on board a US warship that I went onto at a museum. The heads were open plan and there were no separating cubicles or walls. I also remember seeing an exhibit at a Roman museum that depicted a communal latrine. The latrine had long planks with toilet seats, or open holes really, cut into it about a metre apart. My kids laughed because they couldn't imagine going to the toilet in front of anyone else. After hearing Jack's comments, I asked my old shipmate JB from the Ship's Log podcast if he's ever seen an open plan latrine on board a ship. He replied, no, never. On all the ships I've been on, there are individual restrooms with a toilet and a sink, and if it's a stateroom, there's a shower too. I asked him about open plan restrooms in the US and he said the only ones he'd seen were trough style urinals but he added they're not particularly common anymore. JB's podcast is a real gem. In each episode he interviews a different mariner about their experiences at sea. He's a great host and he really gets his guests to open up and share some really interesting tales. So please check out his show. It's on all major podcast platforms. It's called The Ship's Log. Now open plan urinals are very common in New Zealand and they're actually produced and sold by all the major toilet manufacturers. As blokes we all follow set rules when we stand side by side to have a pee. Eyes front, mouth shut, two hands, pee, shake, zip, leave. No exceptions. As Jack pointed out, we do though live in a world where pretty much every cubicle in every public restroom has got a gap between the door and the floor. Now I've never really been concerned about that but I do wonder why it's there. Just how and why did the door gap become the norm? Did a joiner cut the door short to save money and unwittingly create a global trend? Is it a safety feature that lets users escape in the event of an emergency? <laughs> I have to say, it would need to be some emergency before you'd get me crawling on the floor of a communal restroom to get out. <laughs> now that I'm living a nomadic lifestyle, I'm actually more uncomfortable with open plan wash stands. Lots of campgrounds and campsites here have a bathroom area where there are three or four wash basins in a line. Now I prefer my basin to be inside the privacy of a cubicle, ideally with the toilet, so that I could perform all of my ablutions in private. Jack mentioned the concept of the global sanitation agenda. When I started Get Flushed, I deliberately focused on the portable toilet industry. Sure, I've looked at the collection, disposal and treatment of waste, but I've done that very much from the perspective of a restroom operator. Talking with Jack made me realise that toilets are only part of the global sanitation issue. He spoke about the provision of clean water for drinking and washing, adequate toilet facilities, provision for menstrual hygiene and, of course, proper systems to remove, treat and dispose of sewage or septic waste. Now I was really interested to hear him talk about organic systems that didn't use any power and where the nutrients from toilet waste were used to fertilise crops and the gases were used to generate energy. Now Guy Smith mentioned all of that in episode 25 and we actually laughed about Matt Damon's character using his poo to grow potatoes in his movie The Martian. Now the sustainable treatment of waste is becoming increasingly important and we're definitely seeing restroom operators shift away from their traditional reliance on chemical products in toilets. 
Formaldehyde is now less common as an additive, and David Pipkin from Portaclear spoke about his completely revolutionary approach in episode 8. Portaclear completely eliminates odour, unlike traditional chemicals that disguise or mask the smell. And Daryl Veal, the environmental engineer from Christchurch City Council, spoke about the vulnerability of modern effluent treatment plants to chemical and heavy metal contamination. And he also described how methane from septic waste is used to heat civic buildings in Christchurch and how the solid matter is converted into pellets for use in land remediation. This week I've also been looking at worm-based septic tank systems in Australia. Now these are able to handle both black and grey water and it seems the worms digest the solids and produce a nutrient-rich soup that can be used to fertilise crops. I've reached out to the company behind those systems and I hope to feature their work in an episode soon. The need for proper sanitation infrastructure is not just a third world issue. New Zealand's a developed country, but we still have a number of communities that are living with boil notices on their drinking water because of E. coli. And our own capital city, Wellington, suffers from well-documented sewer problems. We've seen poo discharge into the ocean and beaches closed by faecal contamination a number of times this year. Now, it doesn't take much for problems with sewers to affect the public. Combined systems that carry surface water and sewage are still quite common and there's always a risk that heavy rainfall will overload the network. When that happens, raw effluent is discharged into rivers and sea. And similarly, blockages caused by fatbergs or wet wipes can also cause septic waste to spill out of the sewer. Now Jack said politicians are quick to get involved, but we've just had a general election in New Zealand and I can't remember anyone campaigning about sewers. In many parts of the world, the age of the sewer network is becoming a real problem. Lots of them are very old and need to be repaired or replaced. Others just aren't big enough to cope with the increased volume caused by housing developments and population growth. In the neighbourhood I've just left, a new sewer main was built after the 2010 and 2011 earthquakes. Now that sewer had huge capacity, so planners were able to approve lots of new housing developments. Those houses have been built and despite the extra capacity, there are clearly problems with the sewer. If you walk along the main street there now, you'll notice the smell of the sewer. There are two or three spots by pumping stations where you'd do really well not to cover your nose. Now that didn't happen before the sewer was built and I don't know if it's caused by overloading or poor design, but clearly something's not right. That said, I very much doubt that anyone has complained. Jack also highlighted the difficulties faced by women when adequate facilities are not provided for menstrual hygiene. And I have to say that struck a chord because I've never seen a waste receptacle for sanitary tampons, towels or pads in a portable toilet. I've seen them in public restrooms and in luxury towables, but never in your common or garden portable loo. And the solutions are surprisingly simple. One option that I have seen is the TerraCyclic Biosanitary Bin. It's essentially a tall tube with a disposable flip-top lid that's attached to a plastic bag. And the plastic is perfumed so it masks any smell. Now using plastic isn't really eco-friendly, but used sanitary products are treated as a biohazard. They definitely shouldn't be flushed down the loo or left in portable toilets. Of course, the problem faced by PROs is that people will use the bin as a general waste bin. They'll dump bottles, cans, chip packets, lolly wrappers, dog poo, all sorts of other waste into them. Maybe that and the cost of those bins is why they're not very common. And that's a shame because many jurisdictions actually require employers to provide sanitary waste bins when they have female employees. 
I also spoke with Jack about the difficulties faced by disabled, less able and visually impaired toilet users. Again, it really made me think about the products and services that I've seen supplied. Now, portable toilet manufacturers sell accessible toilets that are sold as ADA compliant. These generally have a bigger cabin and a wider door. Quite often, though, they have a much smaller toilet tank, perhaps only 90 or 100 litres, compared to 200 litres in a standard tank. And that's intended to give more room inside the cabin for wheelchair users. However, a smaller tank limits the number of times the toilet can be used before it's full and needs a service. There's sometimes an extra handrail on one or two of the internal walls, but more often than not, all of the other fixtures and fittings in the portable toilet are exactly the same as those on standard loos. The handle, the lock on the door, the paper and sanitizer dispensers and the coat hook. Watching the video on Jack's Facebook page showed that for many users with physical and visual disabilities, those standard heights, fixtures and fittings can make it really difficult for them to actually use the toilet. And at events, the larger cabins on accessible toilets act as a magnet for large groups of girls, large groups of boys and large groups of girls and boys. I often think that it'd be a good idea for event organisers to screen off the accessible toilets and maybe put a steward at the entrance to discourage people who don't actually need to use the accessible toilets from using the accessible toilets. Jack also spoke about politicians and celebrities getting involved and the need to present the subject in the open. Now, if Matt Damon or any other celebrities are listening in, you're more than welcome to appear on Get Flushed. I'll even send you a Get Flushed mug for doing so. While all those celebrity endorsements definitely helped to spread the word, I was really keen to hear about the practical steps that are being taken around the world to improve sanitation. To do that, I spoke with Alice Brandt from Sanitation for Millions. That's a German federal government initiative designed to give disadvantaged and vulnerable population groups access to safe sanitation and hygiene in public places like schools, health centres and mosques. Sanitation for Millions was launched in 2016 and it's a global programme that serves as a platform for cooperation between international donors. Alice put me in touch with one of her field workers, Fred, who's based in Uganda. Hello, Fred speaking. Fred, it's Pete from Get Flushed. How are you? I'm well, thank you. Good. Thank you for taking time to talk with me tonight. I really do appreciate that. Thank you too. I've been running the podcast, I've done 30 episodes, and it's all about sanitation. Okay. It's got quite a lot of followers. Last week, I spoke with Jack Sim from the World Toilet Organization, and he told me about all of the celebrities that he's got involved, and he told me about all of the great work that the World Toilet Organization does. And Alice had emailed me a long time ago and said that she would love somebody from Sanitation for Millions to come on the podcast and talk about their work. And it seemed a really good opportunity to talk to someone who's working in the field. Just tell me your story, really. I I will be looking forward to the podcast as I hear myself stumble over some issues. (laughs) (laughs) You'll be fine. Oh, yes, that sounds fine, yeah. Excellent. So I'm joined today by Fred, who works for Sanitation for Millions in Uganda. So, Fred, tell us a little bit about yourself and how you've ended up working for this organization, please. All right. Thank you very much. I am Fred Nwagaba. I'm a civil engineer. I have been into infrastructure development in the country for now about 20 years. Two years back, Sanitation for Millions program headhunted me because of my passion and my experience in water and sanitation. And um, the reason they headhunted me was to help 
in being able to address the area of sanitation for millions regarding building containment, that is toilet, to be able to provide better access to sanitation to the people in Kampala City, but also in northern Uganda in the city of Apache. That's really exciting that they headhunted you, Fred. How did they find out about you? Well, before I had done development work with GIZ and Sanitation for Millions is the GIZ program. And before then, we had done some very good work also in the area of sanitation, hygiene and water supply in uh, the urban poor settlements. And because of that experience, then they were looking for someone also who would further the work of sanitation development in the context of sanitation for millions where they were looking at work in areas where you have more millions of people uh, that need sanitation, and this this has been the education and healthcare, but also there was need to innovate, especially in uh, hygiene, and with specific emphasis to hand washing uh, related to sanitation hygiene. Are you on your own, or have you got a team of people who work with you there in Uganda? In Uganda, I have a team of uh, technical experts. So I have engineering infrastructure experts. And then I have those, because with infrastructure that we provide, that is building of containment and uh, also supporting fecal sludge management uh, treatment plants. So you have the engineers in there, but also they have to work with the people that do soft activities, that those are the, the supportive activities is hygiene promotion, education, and also um, how individuals can finance their own infrastructure. So have uh, people in software, in financing mechanisms when it comes to sanitation, and also, of course, the general administration uh, of the program. Because it's actually a German initiative, isn't it, from the German federal government? Yes, this is yeah from the federal government but also co-funding also from Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. There is also the Minister of Foreign Affairs and Trade uh, of Hungary, and also Water Unite from the UK. So when you choose a community to go in and work with, what's the process you go through there, Fred, to actually decide where you're going to put your effort and the projects that you're going to take on? The projects that we choose are anchored with the local government. Uh, together with the line Ministry of Water and Environment. For instance, in the case of Kampala, the local government structure is headed by the Kampala Capital City Authority, KCCA, that then helps to identify areas of need, and then we are able to work with them. So there is very good anchor with the local structures. That's really reassuring to hear that people work together and that everybody's on the same journey, because... I'm often fearful with projects like this that you get a bit of competition between agencies and people perhaps hinder the work. We are aligning ourselves to the local development plans and as such, of course, a lot of collaboration. We have a body called the National Sanitation Working Group to which all the developing agents together with government and civil society are being regulated. And therefore, the work that we do is synergetic to what is happening in the sector. From the sanitation for millions point of view, for instance, 
We've now helped in being able to bring infrastructure standards, the minimum standards for, say, constructing proper toilets that are emptable, that stand the test of time. It's quite interesting. And, of course, it's an area where then you, you find there's a lot of local support that then allows that synergy between the developers. When you build a toilet for a community, Fred, what is the design typically? Is it a, a wooden structure or a stone structure, or have you got particular designs unique to Uganda? Of course, they vary from location to location and from level of service to level of service. Provided minimum standards for people from the lowest level of service, which is basically the ventilated improved systems, to the full teams, but the fact that we have to leave no one behind. There's a lot of innovation using the natural environment that is within Uganda with our sun, rainfall, and, and together with nature. So, yeah, that's, that's how it's done. Are you doing toilets which carry the waste to a central disposal treatment work, or are you having to empty the toilets with a vacuum truck? What I can say is that in Uganda and looking at the areas where we are working, less than 10% of the geographical areas are onto the central pipe sewage system and uh, more than 90% are then on off-grid systems. So what we do, our number one priority is taking care of those that are off-grid uh, and as you rightly put it, then it would require to have some emptying systems, mechanical emptying of some of those uh, toilets uh, once they, they, have, they have been filled with sludge. But also we support uh, those that are onto the centralized sewer as long as then we, we are coming in to um, support the sector appropriately. Did I understand correctly, Fred, it's not just toilets, you also maintain and or introduce fresh water systems as well? Well, it's not just toilets. On the water side, our emphasis is water for hand washing especially. But of course, the hand washing water already normally has the quality of drinking water. So that's the extent to which we support the water systems. But along the sanitation service chain, we look at containment, the construction, we look at the issues to do with emptying and transportation of sludge, together with also support for the, its treatment. If there was one thing that anybody could do to make your job easier, Fred, what would it be? Well, I think to make my job easier, what it would be is to, first of all, continue working together to emphasize what sanitation for millions emphasizes that one we we should not rush to build toilets if we've not put a very good maintenance system so this is where sanitation for millions is strong to say have good maintenance such that there's a very good sustainability and then of course issues to do with also support the innovations that we are doing in hand washing together with the private sector involvement in as far as uh, bridging the financing gap that is left by public systems yeah so that that would be very good while we were handing over some of the constructed facilities I was happy to hear the users saying that the facilities that we have given that have been worked on together, because we also involve them, they said 
Sanitation for Millions has showed us a way of how to, first of all, look at planning its maintenance, its use, and also having to look at aspects on building on to it. And then they went ahead to say that they didn't know that the kind of models that Sanitation for Millions have for them would be even compliant to things like COVID, even when these had been planned more than one year before COVID came into the country. So there was this appreciation of the kind of work done with the Sanitation for Millions, and for them, ownership of the process that is not just a donation, it is um, something that is developed together with them. And I imagine that that means you then get really high levels of uptake by the community, that people who've been given the toilets actually want to use them and continue using them, Fred. Is that the case? Yes, definitely, yes. And we can see in areas where we we have worked, we can see a very big difference, especially when I uh, I talk about the schools where we've worked. Um, A very big difference from uh, um, uh, before and also a lot of interest now from the rest of the schools because we are doing models and which would like to learn and pick the models. They picked some of the designs and they they are implementing them um, on their own, uh, which uh, for us then shows us a a level of um, sustainability uh, opportunity. It's really exciting, Fred. I wasn't really aware or conscious that there was such a global issue around sanitation, and it's been really humbling this week, talking with Jack and now talking with you, just to find out that sanitation is not a convenience for people. It's actually a necessity, and that there's some really fantastic initiatives going on in the world. I'm absolutely astounded at some of the work that's been performed. It's fantastic, Fred. It really is. Thank you very much. My conversations over the last couple of weeks have really opened my eyes to the wider challenges that we face to provide sanitation to billions of disadvantaged people all around the world. And Jack made some really important points. He said that proper sanitation is essential for public health. He said that a healthy population is a productive population. And he said that preventing illness is much more cost-effective than treating illness. Fred pushed that a bit further. He said it's not enough to build toilets and expect an unfamiliar population to use them. You need to involve the community, educate them about the importance of proper hygiene, show them how to use the toilets and the hand basins, give them the equipment and skills needed to maintain and repair the network. Toilets alone are only part of the solution. As I end today's show, I have to thank Alice Brandt at Sanitation for Millions in Germany who arranged the interview with Fred, and of course I have to thank Fred. Once again, thank you for your time. I've been Pete, and you've been listening to Get Flushed, 